that's the kind of case where you want them to stay and they want to go that you better document for you. You know, does the patient have the capacity to, to, to leave? Do they fully understand the risk associated with leaving? Sometimes doctors think that, well, if you're going to do that, you know, you're, you're on your own. And that's a, I think that's a big mistake. Hello and welcome. Rick Bucata, June issue of Risk Management Monthly, coming to you. We have a special program today. But first, let me uh, introduce our regulars. Rachel's here. Rachel, hi. How are you? Hi, good. Excited you know, to be here. I saw that you're like about 113 down there uh, right now, and it's only yeah. June for crying out loud. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and Greg, Greg's here. Greg's barely through the spring frost up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, our polar bears are getting unhappy, but uh, it's not bad in Michigan yet. And our uh, guest is Dusty Otwell. Dusty, uh, I met a couple of weeks ago at a uh, videoing we were doing, and we got to talking. Dusty's vice president of claims and risk management for USACs. And uh, I thought it was really kind of unique that here's a lawyer who focuses on advising a large group about uh, their cases and managing their cases. Now, Dusty, do you uh, welcome? Let me welcome you. Thank you. Yeah, Dusty, happy to be here. Dusty's in Georgia. And uh, Dusty, you, you don't litigate these cases, do you? That's correct. I oversee the litigation of our of our case file. Yeah, you tell the lawyers that you hire what to do and what to say. <laughs> I, I provide them encouragement, oversight, and direction. Yes. I think that phrase has been uh, re rehearsed in the past. Hey, listen, <laughs> guys. So what we asked Dusty to do, given his unique experience, which is truly unique. And Dusty, how long have you been doing this with uh, USACs? Uh, with Acute Care Solutions, five years. I was with a regional group. That's now part of the U.S. Acute Care Solutions for 10 years before that. So a good 15 years overseeing cases. So the uh, idea here is for Dusty to give us the secret sauce that he's picked up over these uh, 15 years in what he has to um, advise. If he, had, if he had an audience of emergency physicians and PAs and MPs who are working out there, uh, what are the key things that he's uh, discerned. And I think you have eight or 10 of these things in the, in the hopper, uh, Dusty. Yes, sir. This morning I, I kind of sat down and thought, you know, what are 10 or so things I'd really like clinicians to learn. And, and I'm happy to do it because I love talking to clinicians about kind of secrets, things they, that they don't know that'll make them feel better, make them more comfortable, make them more confident about malpractice uh, litigation, make it less scary, less than unknown. But yes, I've got a nice, nice list here. I'll start, I'll start with um, something topical. Uh, this is a new one. Uh, I've never really talked about before in any of my lectures, but I'd say number one, and I'm curious to hear what the physicians on the call think about this, but in your documentation these days, do not pretend like the pandemic never happened. Do not pretend like everything is business as usual, like it's 2017. Now, what does that mean? Back in the height of the pandemic, let's say we were in the Omicron surge, 
you know, I, I advised my clients to objectively, accurately describe what's going on in the ER that impacted the care of a particular patient. Um, you know, did you have uh, uh, really long hold times? Were you missing uh, some resources? Were some on-call specialists unavailable uh, because of the surge? Tell me about that in your documentation and tell me why it was reasonable to continue to, um, you know, wait or, or do something different for this patient. You know, tell me about that in your documentation. Tell me about, you know, the interesting circumstances uh, uh, due to the pandemic in the care and treatment of that patient. That's a little different from kind of, I think, what we've taught in the past. Usually, you never talk about any of the limitations of the facility. You don't talk about long wait times. You don't talk about, you know, things not going particularly well in the facility. So, I want you to be careful about it. But I do think the circumstances have become so different now that I would like to see more documentation about that in the care and treatment of a particular patient. Do you have any well, examples where that might've been relevant? Yes, um, hold times. Let's say you've got somebody who's hanging out for a long, long time. Uh, without any additional documentation about, you know, why is the patient there you know, for an extended period of time? And then even more important than that, why is it reasonable to continue to wait? Um, give me some documentation like that. And then, you know, if, if something happens to the patient later on down the road, I can use that information to defend you later. Um, I'm just trying to avoid a circumstance like that where I have no documentation to explain what was going on in the ER and, and why you decided, you know, to continue to wait or use limited resources. Um, Another good example, I mean, very topical, would be contrast. Uh, you tell me, is contrast back in supply? It doesn't sound that way from what no. I hear. Yeah. Okay. That, that, well, that's a great example. I mean, so imagine if, you know, you treated a patient and you couldn't use contrast, so you had to do something different. And, you know, you kind of stick to kind of the old good advice of, you know, don't talk about the limitations in the facility. Well, if you do that in a situation where you don't have contrast, we're going to have to explain that later. And it's going to be something we have to do, you know, without the benefit of, of contemporaneous documentation, which really puts us at a, at a disadvantage. So yes, lack of availability of contrast is a great example as well on, I would like to know it wasn't available. I would like to know what you did instead. I'd like to know why it was reasonable for you to do that other thing that you did because contrast wasn't available. Caveat I'll give you though is, is do be careful, uh, be mindful of that, uh, of the tone of that documentation because you know you, you don't want to throw your facility under the bus. You don't want to call the special, uh, throw the specialist or, or, or lack of a, a test uh, under the bus and make it very negative in the documentation. Yeah, that could kind of put, put blood in the water of the plaintiff's attorneys. Um, but do, you know, tell me objectively and accurately 
Um, what, what was your limitation around, say, like contrast? What did you do and why was that reasonable? Greg, any thoughts? <clears throat> Anytime you think that you're going to have to explain something to, uh, to 12 people who, who are just mad that they're there having to listen to this, uh, make sure you make some comment on it in the chart. I can't tell you the number of charts I reviewed where people say, well, they didn't want to hear about all that. I said, no, you're, you're right. You didn't want to hear about all that. But people who sit on a jury may want to. So if there is a deviation from what you usually and customarily do, comment on it. Because uh, it, it, they can't expect that everything runs perfectly every night in every emergency department. What they can expect is you do something about it, or you at least think about the issue. Dusty, <laughs> one of the things that uh, you implied, and I haven't heard of your uh, point of view on this, but I, I sense it is uh, you don't do not favor saying um, a large surge of patients have come into the department. And due to that, there is a, some limitation that you're able to have to deal with with regard to the care of, of patients because you're just overwhelmed. Um, there's a, a, a multi-vehicle accident and they've all come in. And uh, I would have thought that kind of painting that picture objectively would, would help um, if you get into trouble with the care of one of those people. Although, would you just do do that on your own and bring that out at trial that the, the, the board was full of patients and what did you expect our poor doctor to do? Yeah, I think um, I'll, I'll answer that question. I'll, I'll also add a corollary to it. So I, I do think if you are in a situation where you have a surge or maybe a large trauma uh, um, event, I do think there is nothing wrong with it. it doesn't hurt and might actually add add value to add you know a, a, a short detail about what you were dealing with. You know, treated this patient in the context of a you know bus accident where there were a large number of patients you know in the ER, and then you don't get into it any further. You don't mm -hmm. kind of say right. negatively. Therefore, the ER was a disaster or anything like that. But I think that detail could be helpful, you know, in describing the scene in your, in your care of the patient. That would just be a factual comment with, uh, without any judgments implied. It would just say, I'm, we're dealing with a 15 person bus accident. And then at trial, they can really kind of get into the, what our poor doctor was being asked to do. Yeah. And, and, and returning to your original question about a, a surge, say a COVID surge, um, or I'll, I'll fill that in for myself to answer that question. You know, back when we did have COVID surges, I, I think they're crossing my fingers. We're, we're not going to have to use this advice again, but I, I did advise uh, uh, my clients to put in some documentation about care and treatment of this patient happened in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic emergency back when emergencies were de uh, declared in certain States. 
because there's some federal and state law that can be brought to bear on cases coming out of those surges. Um, and therefore, it was helpful um, to put that into documentation so that we could uh, work to uh, bring some of those laws uh, into the defense of those cases. Again, just a short factual statement, not no judgment in it, um, but it, it helps kind of paint the picture that we'll use to defend you. Got you. Does having that statement in there actually, is it actually helpful? Because it seems like if a lawsuit was brought forward, it would be just as easy for the lawyer to go back and say, well, it was provided in the, you know, in the course of the pandemic because it was on this date, you know, so is having that extra documentation, you know, actually all that helpful? I, I think it, it it doesn't hurt. And, and there's there's two ways it might help. Uh, one, um, you know, some some outside attorneys um, uh, kind of are on the fence about using some of these pandemic protections. There are new laws. They don't want to stick their neck out. They, they, they may or may not work and, and they feel like they could, you know, look, uh, look bad to a judge. But if you put that in there, you're kind of feeding it to your, your future attorney. Um, another way it might help, I, I'm still holding out hope for this, is that that, that sentence will um, you know, paint the picture for the jury of, hey, jury, remember, you know, in, in the winter of 2020-21, how awful that was? Well, she was on the front lines. Um, I'm hopeful that helps. So we're not seeing that be particularly helpful among juries right now, but I'm still holding out hope that they'll give us some credit for what we did. Got you. I can move on, on down the line. We're ready for number two. All right. Well, I think about two through five, it involves APP supervision. Um, it's a very, a very hot topic. And I'd say what I get questions on more frequently than anything. So APP supervision, the APP care model, I think we can all agree is, is here to stay. Perhaps we could debate some of the finer points of if it's, you know, um, good for patients in certain areas. And, and that's fine to have that debate. Um, however, I, you know, certainly advise my clients to, you know, take however you feel about, you know, the APP supervision, uh, physician, APP, nurse practitioner, uh, physician assistant, however you feel about that model, you know, check check your attitude at the door on shift. Um, because what I've seen uh, in, in, in some, some facilities where uh, APPs can get themselves into some trouble and then that risk extends to the physicians is there's not a very, very collaborative environment between the APPs and the physicians. And I think that often comes from the physicians are nervous. They're, they're worried about the risk. Maybe they're not happy about the process. So they, they kind of resist it, maybe avoid it. Maybe they have a little bit of a negative attitude about it. Well, and that just makes the APPs reluctant to bring things to you. And that creates a risky situation for the patients which is kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, creates bad outcomes that leads to malpractice cases. Um, 
which were the very APP, APP cases you were worried about in the first place. So the first thing I say is really, you know, lean into the APP model if that's what you're dealing with on that shift. If you want to work on the process, you know, outside of your shift with leadership, please do. But, but on shift, lean into it, collaborate with those APPs. It's better for the patients and better for you because it can prevent uh, malpractice claims. I think one thing, one thing that might be worth clarifying for physicians who maybe are resistant is that if you work kind of regardless of what state you work in, if you work in a hospital that has a model where you're the supervisor, whether that APP decides to come to you with a question about that patient or decides that, you know, you're clearly hostile to this model and they're not going to come to you with that question. If something goes wrong with that patient, you're on the hook regardless of whether you had that discussion or not. Yes. 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 On the hook is a strong term. I try to stay away from black and white. Dr. Henry seems totally fine with with agreeing with that. Exactly. You're still, your name is still going to be on that chart. And uh, you'll believe me, if there's a problem, you'll get called to testify. And so, you know, you were there. We're going to find out. Uh, And if you were the supervising physician, we're going to find out. If you were the medical director, they might bring you in. If you just happen to be there that day on shift, they're going to find out and they might call you in. And if if the APP, you know, uh, uh, talked to you and then went to somebody else, the APP is going to have to testify to that. So all of that is going to come out. So which do you think you're, which is the better position to be in? Okay, the APP comes up to you and then runs away because he or she is is scared and the patient has perhaps a bad outcome or they come up to you and you advise them to do something different. Um, Bad outcome avoided, uh, standard of care, you know, met. Uh, Which of those scenarios do you think you're at the greater risk? Of course, it's the former. Well, and I think what I want to clarify is APP doesn't come to you at all, but technically you're the supervisor on the shift. You're the person that they that's available for them to come to. In that case, you as the physician are still responsible, even if you never heard about the patient, because that's what we see over and over again in cases. Yes? That's correct. Yeah. A plan of attorney. If you're the doc on... And your name is going to appear on that chart someplace. Yeah, you'd like to know about every patient who, who you have to take responsibility for. And, and you know, I, I'm sure almost all of the, of the uh, PAs in that are, are very good. The bottom line is I still have a responsibility to look at those patients. I mean, it's not just, it's a good idea. You know, it's my responsibility and I have to take it that way. Um, And I just want to see them. Maybe I don't want to know a lot about them. Maybe I don't need to do a lot more examination of this or that, but you know what? Um, If they've paid to see a doctor, they ought to see the doctor, I I think. 
That's just not happening. I mean, that's you know, that's just not reality, though. It's not going to happen. This is old-fashioned <laughs> stuff here, Greg. You're, well, you know, I, you <laughs> know what? Hey, I'm going to tell you, it it saved my butt a lot of times over the years, because but, quite frankly, having done it for 50 years or something like that, I had seen more things than they had. But you wouldn't, you you couldn't exist in the current system. Well, well, you know, that, that brings up another issue. I think that um, some of these places have degenerated, I think, and I think that's the word degenerated into these are your patients and these are my patients. And you see the more minor cases. And, then, and at the end of the shift, I'm going to sign all these charts of people I have not seen. I have no idea about them. We've also seen, in fact, we've reviewed on this show uh, some cases where uh uh, APPs have taken on cases that were kind of tricky. Like uh, there's one we just did uh, recently where a the wife of a malpractice lawyer goes in to see uh, the ER folks and she is uh, sent home without a CT and she comes back subsequently with appendicitis that doesn't do so well. The doctor claims, I have no idea anything about this person. And uh, uh, this this case was solely handled by the uh, by the uh, APP. And I think that that kind of that kind of stuff is is dangerous. I have had two family members go, go in what I with what I saw, thought were uh, these cases obviously are going to seen by a doctor. Well, they never were. Uh, they were seen by. APPs exclusively, and it was like, "What are you serious?" And I honestly, they did, they did a good job. I can't say that any, I fault them in any way, but it's like, wow, uh, has it come to this uh, where somebody with a suspected pulmonary embolism is not seen by, or potential pulmonary embolism is not seen by um, a physician? I thought that there ought to be some kind of threshold and uh that where you know like all kid, kids below three months are, are seen by a physician in addition to i think that these are collaborative kinds of things i don't think it it should be only the doctor i think the app can see that little kitty but i'm also going to see it a little kitty too and that app will facilitate my work and do some, you know, put in orders that we mutually agree on. So I don't have to get onto that computer and it'll do most of the documentation about the history and physical, but I will have been there. And I, I agree, Greg, that patients' expectations are, you're going to see a, a doctor. I mean, the charges for a, an ER visit, I just saw recently in one case, were $1,600 for a visit that would be seen in an urgent care center for you know, a, ha uh, a tenth of that. So this is concierge level prices. I think you ought to try to get a doctor to just be involved a little bit. Now, I know I know that is also 19, the, you know, 1950 kind of reasoning, because why aren't you beating me up yet? I'm waiting for you to beat me up, uh, <laughs> Rachel, about, oh, no, you'd never be able to work in the ER today. No, no, so I have to... <laughs> I want to go back and qualify my statement. So when I said Greg wouldn't be able to work in the system today, I, you know, I don't disagree with the model he's espousing here. I, I think it's, 
you know, a model I would probably prefer, but it's not the model that is being practiced, you know, in most systems where they are having, you know, non-physician providers that are seeing patients independently. Physicians are, you know, technically supervising, but often not seeing those patients yet are supposed to be available to see the ones that the non-physician providers are needing help with. And I think, you know, a lot of physicians are frustrated in those systems. So when those non-physician providers come to them and want help, sometimes what they're getting is just kind of a hostile, a hostile physician because they're just so frustrated. And I think what Dusty's saying is you have to check that because if you're that hostile physician, the chances of, you know, that patient having a bad outcome are so much higher because now you have uh, a patient that, that, that nurse practitioner or PA doesn't know what to do with you have made yourself kind of unavailable to them. Like this patient is more likely to have a bad outcome. You're more likely to have a bad outcome. So you have to check it. We're not defending the system. We're just trying to, you know, protect yourself in the system as it exists. So anyway, I, yeah. yeah and as the system exists, I do want to uh, uh, make uh, physicians in particular feel a little better about it because um, in, in some of the examples I've heard just now, like the appendicitis patient, physician never even saw, saw the patient. Um, and let's say there was arguable negligence on the part of the APP. In my experience, the, uh, the claim, the malpractice suit will come against the APP and the physician. They'll both get it. Over time, the case will start to center on the APP because that's where the violation of the standard of care is. That's where the plaintiff has things to talk about. And then let's say uh, uh, in the short term, maybe we get that physician to you know, drop from the case in six to 12 months, or in the long term, maybe we settle the case. And when we settle those cases, uh, we're able to settle them on behalf of the APP and the physician is dropped from the case without a data bank report. And plaintiff attorneys are, are, are comfortable with that, are always willing to go along with that. So, you know, it, you, could, you could get brought into a case you know, that an APP uh, saw the patient, but you know, that could happen with a nurse that could happen with a resident. And if you didn't see the patient, there's really not a lot of potential liability they can put on you, but rather in, in, in the vast majority of the cases, the APP, his or her insurance, they're going to be the ones who are really having to, to pay the lion's share and defend the claim. So it's annoying. It takes months. Um, but but it's it's a far lower risk than you see in somebody with a headache who turns out to be a stroke. That that's something that could be more dangerous to you. In that appendicitis case, um, they sued because of lack of um, adequate supervision. They uh, they sued because uh, the PA uh, practiced beyond its scope of practice. They were outside of it. At, at least that was the assertion, and they. Um, they also got into some things in terms of violation of their contractual relationship with the hospital to provide supervision and care together. Um, they went after all of these little tangential kind of kind of ways of 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 making it look like this case should have been seen by a physician and uh, was not, and that maybe there should be some cases that are seen by a physician. Had a physician seen this case, maybe the outcome would have been better. Uh, uh, that's the, that's the implication of the case that that there's certain cases that probably are a little too risky to be seen solely by a PA. And yeah, 
I, I would challenge you know, the physicians listening to this to, you know, on your next shift, introduce yourself to your to your APPs. I'm sure you do. Introduce yourself, say, hey, if you need anything, you come see me today. You know, if you don't mm-hmm. and you do that, that could prevent that case from from you know getting yourself drawn into it. It so I just want to um ask about this because what you said, I'm, I'm not totally sure about where you said that if you don't see the patient, you know, as a physician, your liability risk is, is quite, quite small. Cause there are definitely cases out there where, you know, the physician didn't see the patient, but they were, you know, held responsible for that outcome at the end of the, the case. And I know I have a lot of friends who are in a, you know, community practice setting. They have MPPAs that they're responsible for supervising. They generally patients come in and out. They don't see those patients at the end of the day, they basically have to sign those charts, you know, at the threat. And they're basically, they're uncomfortable with that, but they've basically been told if you don't sign them, we'll find somebody who will sign them. You're out of a job. So that's what they do. You know, they sign those charts. I, I supervise this care, you know, so they can bill for that care as physician supervised care. Do you think that if something goes wrong with that case, that that physician, even though they didn't see the patient, is not going to be responsible after they've signed that chart. Well, we have to we have to be careful with our definitions. I, yeah. You know, I think clinicians like to think of malpractice liability in black and white. Yeah. You know, am I covered or not? Am I liable or not? Um, well, you might get named in the suit. In fact, you probably will if your name is on the chart. Mm-hmm. You might get you know prosecuted for lack of a better term and the plaintiff attorney continues the case against you and makes your life miserable, you know, for, for eight, 12 months to two years. At the end of the day, you know, is, is, is the insurance company going to have to settle for money on your behalf? At the end of the day, is a jury going to find that you're liable and for this much amount of money? Yeah. That, that final circumstance where you have to pay money on your behalf through your insurance company, I'd say that's when you're liable. And that is the circumstance I think is, is not, uh, uh, not very likely when you never saw the patient. Because don't forget, APPs these days, they have insurance too. They have their own standard of care. So if I'm a plaintiff attorney and I have an APP who you know screwed up, um, to put it bluntly, I can I can really exploit that. I can get that insurance money. And then I've got the physician over here who didn't have anything to do with it, who's kind of the white hat. Um, you know, why would I prosecute him or her when I can get, you know, 750, a million dollars from the APP? So it's it's not terribly likely they're gonna go after you. Um, I'm not saying it's impossible. You go into shift one day and it's possible you get sued. The only way to avoid that is not to go on shift. Uh, but I think in the greater scheme of the, the 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 liability risks you face, this is a much smaller risk than the patients you do see who could have a catastrophic outcome with a stroke or a heart attack or sepsis and sue you directly for your individual care of them. That's the greater risk to you than than supervision. Yeah. Plus, it also you also wonder what that statement is on the chart that they uh, are signing. Maybe it says something like I was available to see or consult this patient uh, should the 
APP have, have requested it or some something that basically this reaffirms that there was supervision. No. <clears throat> No, it's basically I directly supervise it. It's whatever you know directly they need supervised. to say so that they yeah so that they can they can bill their they, get their hundred percent. Actually, they can't bill without seeing the patient. Well, they're attesting to the fact that they. No, you they gotta, were, you have to you have to physically be in there. Everyone's doing med. It's it's fraudulent everywhere. That's like that, that's that, that's what's that, happening everywhere. So Just you can't bill hundred percent for that. Well. You know, you should become a fraud investigator and people would love you. I could be that's, a whistleblower. That's reality everywhere. I'll, I'll be a whistleblower and we'll split it, okay? I like it. <laughs> 30%. I, honestly, I've thought about it. Um, it doesn't happen where I work, so. I I, I think uh, I'm not going to opine on the compliance in the uh, billing. <laughs> Luckily, I don't have to worry about that. Yeah. Um, but but I do know you're right. It's that it's very common where you get this big stack of charts or electronic stack of charts, and they say you got to sign them all. Um, and, and I will caution you though that you know notwithstanding what may or may not be on the the form of what are you signing, so some uh, physicians uh, will come to me with, "Hey, I've got this statement I'm going to include with my signature to kind of explain the situation." Um, and the one statement I've seen that I think does make sense is I was available for consultation. That's accurate, uh, objective. It's not negative. It's not judgmental. I, I don't have any problem with that statement. I've seen plenty, though, where I've said, do not put that next to your signature, including um, uh, signing because of hospital policy. And then you you can almost see the in parentheses, which I don't agree with or something like that. Something, some very negative signing statements that again, just put chum to puts chum in the water for the plaintiff attorneys. You really don't have to put anything other than your signature, but if you really want to put something else available for consultation, if it's accurate is, is not a bad idea. So let's move down the line a little further. By the time this is over, we're going to have a whole, because I'm going to come back to you for some questions, but but I don't know whether they're coming, so I don't want to preempt any of that stuff. All right. Well, uh, one that's uh, uh, fresh uh, on my mind is I'm tired of seeing declined admission uh, in the chart. When a patient wants to go home and the only information I have about uh, the conversation surrounding that patient going home is declined admission. What, what, what does that mean? Did the patient want to stay and you talked them out of it? Uh, were they adamant about going home and you said you are going to have a bad outcome? This is a terrible idea. I, I need more color around that conversation. Because if you, if you don't give me more about that conversation of the patient refusing and leaving, it's now a fact question. And we're going to have to depose you and depose the patient and the patient's family and the nurses. And I guarantee you the patient will not remember it the way you do. And in fact, we had a case uh, in Texas uh, not long ago where we had to find a nurse to corroborate, you know, our version, our accurate version of that conversation, which was, you know, we really think you should stay. You know, if, if you go home, you know, go see your doctor immediately. And please come back because we don't think this is a great idea. Well, the nurse to corroborate that did not want to be found. And we hired a private eye, private eye guy to hang out in dumpsters 
in Tennessee, West Virginia, and Texas, and finally found this nurse in an RV park on the coast and subpoenaed her, brought her in, and were able to successfully defend the case. But it would have been really nice just to have the documentation around that rather than having to hang out in a dumpster and, and find there's, this nurse. There's nothing like the original statement, is there? I mean, that you wrote that night when you saw the patient. And I know that everybody's tired and they don't want to spend that time, but that's the kind of case where you want them to stay and they want to go that you better document pretty well. Yeah, we view the uh, AMA cases as high-risk cases uh, for sure. Uh, you know, does the patient have the capacity to, to, to leave? Do they fully understand the risk associated with leaving? Um, are, are doctors making it clear that they uh, are encouraging the patient to stay and that they've uh, indicated the risk that the patient is taking? Um, and the other thing is sometimes doctors think that, well, if you're going to do that, you know, you're, you're on your own. And that's a, I think that's a big mistake. If they have an infection, give them something, give them some antibiotics. If they're, if they're having some pneumonia, give them some antibiotics. If the, uh, uh, that's the best thing you could do within the, the constraints that have been put upon you. you know, it may not be the best care, but I'm trying to help you out. And the idea that you said, Dusty, is listen, come back here anytime, 24-7, and you have to allow them to come back with dignity so you can't say my way or the highway it's kind of like okay that's it's your choice we're still friends and you know if you want to come back we'd be happy to see you that that whole thing needs to be done in that context so that um people will hear that and you're going to certainly document of that as much of that as uh is possible but but saying declined admission it's like that's that's like charting 101. Yeah, I see it a lot. And and so I think whenever you're grabbing an AMA form or writing declined admission, just remember that's a flag. So declined admission, you write that. And remember, you know, this podcast, say, oh, I should write something else. I should add more color uh, around this. And I've heard uh, Dr. Henry and others say before, you know, the, the AMA conversation or the refusal conversation does not and should not be a uh, adversarial conversation. Um, if it is adversarial, you're kind of dooming yourself to failure. If, if you're right that something serious is going on, now they're less likely to come back. You know, they're going to feel stupid or they're going to feel, you know, marginalized by you. So you, you do want them, like you said, to feel welcome to come back. And by God, I hope you come back. Mm-hmm. You know, please do. Yes, I don't I know. How, I don't know if you have thoughts on the AMA forum. I've kind of discouraged people from using it because, at least you know, in our institution, it's kind of a lot of standard gobbledygook and then like a place for a signature. And I, you know, I just can't imagine that that's all that meaningful. And I, you know, I've encouraged people instead to basically, you know, document what the conversation was. So, okay, you want to leave because you've got, you know, eight goats at home that need to be fed and, you know, you don't have anybody else that could feed them. And this is more important to you and you understand blah, blah, blah. So to kind of, you know, make it clear that it wasn't just, you had them sign this generic form, but that you sat down with them, you had a conversation that was kind of individualized to them. This was their reasoning. And then, 
you know, also to supplement it with that capacity discussion that Rick was talking about, because I feel like if people rely on that just generic form, they feel like that's it, you know, that's yes. it, it right. did their job for them. And it's, it's silly. Yeah. My, uh, uh director of risk, uh, Dr. John Badola and I, uh, talk about from time to time, this belief in the AMA fairy, that if you have an AMA form, you can slip it under your pillow and then everything is going to be all right. But what actually happens is the AMA fairy takes your wallet because if you <laughs> only rely on the AMA form, you got this legal looking form that plaintiff attorneys, and I would find it easy to take an AMA form to twist it and try to make you look bad. Like you just put this form in front of them to try to protect yourself. Well, yeah, you defeat that with the illustration of the conversation. Put in the chart that they wanted to go home and take care of their goats. Mm-hmm. That's interesting information and provides color around why they definitely wanted to go home. And that's more valuable than the AMA form. So I think the form's fine if you got it ready to go and you know it can be signed. But but just don't let that supplant the more important documentation. There's also the issue of having some witnesses hear that documentation uh, on the part of the patient and and and. and the hospital. I think it's great to have a family member there and a nurse from the department. So it's everybody's listening to the same conversation here and you're going to document it, but the nurse is also going to document it in uh, their recording. And the family member may even help convince the person to stay. Greg, Greg's always said something to, in the past, Greg, give them your, your spiel about what's going to happen if Mr. Jones goes home and uh, what the wife's going to have to do? Yeah, exactly. The the fact that, uh, well, you know, here we wash them, we feed them, we clean them. What are you going to do with this guy at home? And you've got, you know, you got some 75, 80 year old guy and his wife is not the strongest and she's got to take care of this guy at home. Sometimes she got to lay out realities <laughs> to the family and say, really, we'd love to keep your, your dad for the night, you know, it's kind of see how he does. They, most people do respond positively to that. The other thing is, this is what we do for a living. <laughs> and so hopefully... They, they have some respect for our abilities in these kinds of cases. Um, I, I, I can't tell you the number of times I've seen uh, elderly couples where they said, no, I can take care of, uh, of grandma, you know, for, for the next couple of days. No, they couldn't. <laughs> and the family was back. And it's, it's not uncommon. Okay, we're all in, in agreement here. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'll uh, I'll continue on. Uh, Dr. Henry uh, reminded me of um, of another point uh, I've heard him talk about, and, and that is uh, the, the the nature of this business. Uh, Dr. Henry was on a, a, a podcast by Dr. Gita Pensa, the L word, uh, physicians and litigation. It was great. He's great on it. Uh, I, I recommend it. Yeah, it's free. It's on Apple Podcasts. Um, th- there's other education out there 
on, you know, surviving a malpractice case. Uh, I think you, you go through this whole uh, catalog, uh, uh, just, you know, the CCME, you'll, you'll find some stuff. Well, go find it and go listen to it before you get sued. Uh, I, I want ER clinicians to accept the fact that you're an ER clinician, uh, not a pathologist. Um, you're probably going to get sued one day. And, and in fact, I, I'm not sure what the, the current data is, uh, but at one time it was 13% of all ER clinicians at any one time are going through a case. That might be skewed now uh, from the pandemic, but I mean, one in 10 of your colleagues is probably going through a case. That's so kind of interesting the- because, uh, you know, your group, I was looking for your name here. Maybe this, uh, this was published in 2018, but maybe uh, it took, a, maybe you were not uh, fully engaged with these guys when this happened, but it's, it's entitled po- Provider and Practice Factors Associated with Emergency Physicians being named in a malpractice suit. And this is when uh, your company had um, 87 contracts as the, as the old days. 87 right. contracts, 15 states, and they reviewed uh, 9.5 million cases involving, uh, uh, not cases, but patients that seen by 1,029 doctors. And, and out of that, they had 98 cases of uh, malpractice. Now, the outcomes of those, most of those, there was very few dollars changed hands, but it basically said that this is a survey that went over a four and a half year period in that four and a half year period, 9% of the doctors got sued. So, I mean, if you're talking about a lifetime of 30 years or 35 years, you, you're, you're definitely going to get sued, actuarially speaking, because 9% got sued in four and a half years out of 1,000 doctors. This is a great yeah. study that you guys did, uh, by the way. I, um, this might have been just before you came. It was done by a... Justin Carlson was the lead author on that, and uh, Jesse Pines was involved as well. But this was the, one of two papers that I thought were really, really, uh, really, really good because here was a group of uh, emergency physicians showing to the world their uh, claims experience. Yeah, and, and Dr. Carlson and Dr. Pines and I uh, uh, still work uh, uh, closely. It, and I, I certainly respect that effort of theirs because it, it reflects our organizations, you know, taking very seriously that we are going to get sued. It's part of the nature of our business, and it is it is of a, a, a significant mental and emotional impact to an ER clinician. And and if you're not ready for it, it could bowl you over, and and you could be completely uh, ineffective in the defense of your case. And we're not going to be successful in defending your case. You're not going to be a good witness. You're going to want us to settle and maybe we could take it to trial. Um, so I- imagine if in that study, there was a study that said, uh, 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 you know, 9% or, or whatever the percentage was, but it wasn't malpractice litigation. It was cancer. It was that you're going to get this kind of cancer. Would, wouldn't you look it up? You know, wouldn't you go do some research on it and kind of look at some survival strategies for this, you know, th- this this cloud yeah, that, makes that sense. probably hits you? 
I think the more you can do that, the more confident you're going to feel that, hey, these other people got through it. There's all these resources out there. And then, you know, when a sheriff in weird sunglasses ruins your day, handing you a piece of paper, you're going to be a little bit more ready. You'll never be ready, but but you'll just be in a better place to deal with it. And um, you'll have a more successful outcome. And then very important to me, I'm just tired of seeing clinicians fall apart. Um, it's, it's hard to watch. It's hard to see people in pain. And, and I do believe that the more education we do on it, the better off you're going to be in the experience. You mentioned Gita Pensa, uh, who is an emergency physician from Brown University, who was involved in some horrendous suit that where she was, there was a trial and then there was another trial and she won both of them, but it took a pound of flesh out of her. And so she started this blog called um, the L word isn't, I think it's, that's, it's called the L word. It's a, the, the podcast is the L word physicians in litigation. Yeah. yeah. And so you can find it and she's, we've had her on uh, this show. She's got a really good heart, sweet person and uh, is there to kind of help out docs who are struggling with this. Now, every doctor is going to be struggling, but the, the degree of struggling is, is the issue. Um, so I would definitely seek her out. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's become a friend of mine. And I mean, she, she gets it, you know, in terms of um, the, the body doesn't really know what the difference is mentally, emotionally between getting sued and getting cancer. It's, it's, it's a similar mental impact. So, so we, we should take it seriously and, and work to cope. Well, you know, another people, people say, listen, listen, this is a, just a part of doing business here. It's going to be, it's pretty much inevitable that that's going to happen to you sometime during your career. Listen, you have audio insurance so that if you have a car crash, uh, the, hopefully nobody got hurt, but the, you know, you really messed up that other guy's Porsche. Uh, you can just walk away and say, I'm really sorry I did that, and they'll pay. But we don't view it the same uh, when we are accused of deviating from the standard of care, and they and then they're in the process of making us look like an uncaring jerk of a physician. Because that's, that's your identity. Um, I don't know about you, but I don't identify myself as a driver. I go from A to B. But if somebody called me a bad driver, I'd be there. Maybe, maybe you're right. Right. If, yes. they call, if, they call, if they call me a bad lawyer or a bad father, a bad husband, I mean, things I identify as, that really, that really messes with your head. And, and a malpractice case does it in fine detail. It talks about how you're a bad physician. That really messes with your head. All right. Let, let's move, move down the list. All right, I'll, I'll bring out uh, my last prepared list. Uh, and that is avoid dirty words in the uh, chart. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about your standard George Carlin dirty words. I'm talking about malingering. I'm talking about drug seeker. I'm talking about uncooperative. I'm talking about difficult. I'm talking about short uh, shortcuts to describe a patient's behavior that can be considered judgmental, uh, mean, discriminatory. Years ago, I heard Dr. Henry say, you know, 
you can be right and be a jerk. <laughs> or you can be wrong and be the defendant. Right, right. So if you call somebody malingering and you're right nine times out of 10, well, okay, great. But that one time out of 10 where you're wrong, um, that word is going to really exacerbate the plaintiff's case against you. So I, I say, you know, if you've got somebody who's malingering, tell me why you think they're malingering in objective terms. If you've got somebody who's difficult, tell me why they're difficult. From time to time, uh, my clients even write in quotes what the patient says. And it's great because it's usually pretty hilarious and it makes me laugh. But it's, it also just, you know, accurately describes the scene versus saying they were uncooperative which can really kind of sound judgmental. So please watch out for those little shortcut words. Yeah, with the 20th Century Cures Act out there, patients are uh, able to get their records pronto, like by the time they get home and can review it. And so there's a whole litany of things that we have been advised to clean up, like, like the patient complains of uh, X. The patient said, I wasn't complaining. You know, it was like, well, the patient, so the, maybe the patient presents with X is be this will be the swap out. And uh, um, yes, nothing, nothing negative that cannot be uh, objectively uh, quantified and question marks are, are recommended extensively. If this person is um, 400 pounds. You don't say something about their obesity. You just say something that they're BMI is off the chart or, or something, you know, so that there's more objectiveness to it rather than using a word that has really, you know, negative connotation. Patients aren't diabetics and they more, uh, they're not called diabetics. They're called the patient with diabetes. There's a whole litany of things that, that you can think of that tend to demean the patient's in our re records, but they don't mean to be de demeaning. They're just our code words. And so we, we use this stuff, but if a person were to read this stuff, they may, uh, they may take it uh, offensively. Yes. And, and the other thing, um, now that they can read their chart, do not put down things that you did not do in the physical exam. He never listened to me. In fact, the they they may not have le ever listened to you, and so they expect an exam. And to the extent that you don't do an exam, it's one thing. To the extent that you put down that you did the exam, they're going to say, "Hey, this isn't correct." Same thing with the history. When you put down all of the systems reviewed and negative, they didn't ask me about my eyes. They didn't ask me about my my kidneys. They didn't ask me about any of that stuff. What are you talking about? So, um, and there's a study of 10 UCLA residents, all 10 of them fabricated the charts by aggrandizing what they did. Watch the macros. Uh, I kind of switching topics so to go back to the, the topic of quotations. There have been a bunch of studies of quotations and you know, I think this is a bit of a danger zone people get themselves in trouble with when I'm reviewing charts, uh, like of the residents, I tend to see people use these in ways that are, uh, 
you know, I think included more for the purpose of humor than anything else, which Mm-mm. I think is, um, more likely to get people in trouble. And, uh, you know, they'll talk about, you know, patients, um, worried that they have the Corona and they'll put that in quotations, you know, kind of poking fun at the vernacular of the patient. And there have been studies on this showing that physicians are more likely to do this for minority patients. And when we do this, it carries kind of negative connotations to downstream providers. And again, it's, it's kind of um, negatively impacting the care of those patients and, and it's overly done for minorities. And so I think we have to be really careful about use of quotations. There may be a role for it, you know, and kind of describing behavior or something or providing examples of that, but, um, it, it tends to be overdone and often done to kind of, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know, make fun of people. And if it's done for that purpose, it, it should, it has no place. That's a really yeah. good point. Really that's good a, point. That's a great point. Um, and it's easy to miss, especially when you're defending the case, and looking for quotes, and you do come across things that make you laugh. Uh, but in the moment, why are you putting this in quotes? <laughs> yes. Perhaps I'll, well, perhaps I'll, I'll refine uh, kind of my statements to, you know, don't don't use a shortcut judgmental word. Describe yeah. objectively what you saw, and if you think the quote is all that really will do the job. Um, then sure, use the quote. But then again, to your point, be careful. Uh, make sure you're not, you're not using it in a way that's really just discriminatory and, and mean. I got an infection in my bronicles. Right. Uh, yes. So uh, uh, have we gotten through the PANP part? <laughs> we spent a little time on it. and. Uh, you couldn't handle happy. the heat. Yeah, I'd be happy to go back, talk about that a little more if you like. Uh, no, I think that um, I think that this uh, you're you're 100 right. This is not going away. It's kind of like you better learn to love your one, the one you're with in in this in this situation. Resistance is futile. Did you say you wanted to come back and do another another full? session on that topic is that what you said Just whole time mps PAs. Deal. it's a real easy topic everybody everybody has love it you know, simpatico views on it we're recording this right we got him <laughs> this is uh this is going to be on the uh, youtube uh, millions of people are going to see this <laughs> hey greg you have any thoughts you've been kind of quiet over there today sorry i've been a uh a quiet uh, person today, but bottom line is there's something floating around in the air here that I've, that I've contracted and I have no idea what it is. You realize when you're the doctor, you don't know what you have and, and you've put all these other ideas and concepts into it. I mean, I'm sure I've got nothing but a virus, but uh, you know what? With all this nasty news every night on TV, you got to worry about this stuff. 
Hey, listen, we got uh, Dave Pett uh, just recovering from uh, Dave. How, how long are you out with this thing? And this 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 guy's as healthy as a horse, and he's like a he's thirty some years old for crying out loud. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I think today is day ten or something like that. I te- well, no, I can't remember. It's been a a lot longer than I expected for as healthy as I feel I am. But maybe I'm just fooling myself. <laughs> Dave. Uh, left this recording that we were doing and uh, wound up staying for a couple of days in my house in Los Angeles. Then it was turned out he's positive. He's got, then he went to another friends of our house in, in Scottsdale. Then he came to my house. He'd been in my house for eight, eight days because he wants to avoid, you know, contaminating his family. And it's like, Dave, you're going to get the uh, purple heart and the bronze star for, for this. But I think it's I. But there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Greg, why don't you take one of those tests? Will you please do me a favor? <laughs> you know those, yeah, I, those I, I, COVID things there. Yeah, I probably they're, should. Do they're that. all over yeah. the place. Yeah. We don't want anything to happen to this national treasure here now. You know. <laughs> yeah. Any any uh, further th- further thoughts? I I think you've got a, a ton of information uh, from all of this you do. You do. Yeah, I think uh, uh, I'll, I'll leave it with, um, so perhaps you'll remember, um, you know, think about what what are you going to do the next time you learn that, you say, a patient you saw had a really bad outcome or a patient you saw is going to sue you. Um, I don't know about you, but one of the first things I do in order to, uh, you know, communicate with friends and, and resources about things that are happening as I get on my cell phone. Uh, be careful with that because if you text another clinician or your boss about, uh, you know, a patient who came back or a patient who's going to sue you, that's evidence. And I guarantee you in the heat of the moment, as you're texting and worried about it, you're not going to sound good. So, when you have somebody have a bad outcome, you have somebody who's going to see you go into the official channels immediately and pass the text and tweet option as you go towards the official channels. Don't text, don't get on social media, go straight to your, somebody who looks like me, like a risk manager or your physician leader and do it by phone. Ask, what are we going to do? And and don't get on text and and, and say things you might. You How, about your, How about your spouse? You text your spouse. Your spouse uh, has spousal privilege and is uh, confidential. Uh, keep in mind, it's up to the spouse to invoke the spousal privilege. So, if they're pissed, they can. Uh, <laughs> yeah, your history. Yeah. Make your history. sure things are, things are working out. <laughs> They'll just hold that thing over your head for the whole time, period of time that you're exposed to this risk. Right. Right. <laughs> Um, Dusty, do you, uh, advise the lawyers that your group hires to, uh, with regard to the strategy that you recommend they use? Yes, absolutely. And an exa- an example would be, uh, the pandemic liability protections I mentioned earlier. Um, those are new. Um, they haven't been, uh, significantly tested across the country. But um, I'm cer- I certainly advocate that our outside attorneys try it, even if they fail, 
because I certainly think our clinicians earned it and we should at least try uh, to use these laws. Do you use, do you have to use attorneys in each state that you're being sued in? Yes. That are licensed, that are licensed in that state, I guess. Licensed in the state and even in even some of the national uh, characters who are licensed most everywhere. Usually it's better to have, you know, your your typical boots on the ground who knows the judges. And importantly, knows the plaintiff attorney, um, knows him, him or her well, uh, really provides a lot of value to the client. Are you seeing any. what would you think to be the, the most common things that are coming down the pike for you uh, with regards to the assertions? Is it because I, I heard that there was a lot of spinal epidural abscesses. Uh, any other things that are recurrent? Because my view is you ought to need that. You ought to know about spinal epidural abscesses cold, given the fact that these are big dollar suits and you're likely going to lose. They, they are, and they, I mean, it's the, the risk and cost of malpractice litigation is driven by the injury. And so and that's why you can immediately see why spinal epidural abscesses, um, you know, tick off those boxes because it, they're bad injuries and people are debilitated for life. So sure, do, do take note of those. Spinal epidural abscesses are weird. I mean, they, they come in waves, uh, Sometimes there'll be a wave of them one summer and then the wave the next summer and then they go quiet. I don't know. Um, so, yeah, watch out for those those guys. But um, at the end of the day, keep your eye on uh, the most significant risks, and that's heads, hearts, and guts, um, strokes, heart attacks, and, and sepsis. There's other interesting stuff out there. And sure, if you've got time, you know, mitigate your risks on, on those things, but boy, uh, strokes and in particular rare strokes uh, really hurt people. And that can lead to some very uh, expensive cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we struggle with uh, making the diagnosis in some of these things, uh, particularly these basilar artery strokes where the person comes in dizzy and we, well, maybe it's a, an ear thing or it's a brain thing. And, ear things, no big deal. Brain things, a big deal. And, and, uh, that for us is one of the tough ones for sure. Uh, any other diagnoses that we should kind of have our antennas up for that you've been running into? Um, sepsis, uh, and, you know, infections that lead to sepsis and, and really hurt people. Um, uh, continue to bedevil everyone. Um, watch out for heart rates. Um, if, if you discharge somebody with a high heart rate, right. I, I'm sure it happens all the time. But you if they come back, why. yep. Yeah. If they, if they come back with sepsis or, or, or die at home, um, that that's going to be difficult. Yeah. I think that we, in our, what we've done here over the last 10 or 12 years is really emphasize that these vital signs, these life signs are really important. And if they're abnormal, you need to be able to explain them. You know, it's okay to have a kid go out with 110 pulses as long as the fever is 102 or three, that's okay. But you know, you're not allowed to have 140 or 150 without a good explanation. Yeah. Anything with blood pressure. 
And, and the, those signs are, are, I mentioned his name before, Dr. Badola um, in our group, group, he's done some research to show that that high heart rate is uh, one of, if not the uh, best predictor of someone returning with a bad outcome. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt it. I yeah, keep down. that in mind as you're, you know, discharging somebody with a high heart rate. You you, you certainly want to know why that's reasonable. I'm curious in your position with this big group, if you've, you know, been able to turn kind of all of your experience with these lawsuits into any practice changes. Yes. Um, the the trick is, the trick is two things is behavior change, which is very hard. Um uh, but but then the 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 um, I, I think the way to get there is to refine your message. Uh, we could educate on every bad case that we have, and nothing would change because it would just be constant noise coming yeah. from our our CMO team. So I think what you really got to do is focus on what are the handful of things you want the physicians to do differently, because largely they're doing fine. Um, it's just a handful of things they really need to do differently to defend themselves better on the big cases. Um, and discharge tachycardia, that's a great one. Um, and some of the validated tools, uh, heart score, NIH stroke scale, those are other uh, interventions that, that we can push on the, the really, really dangerous cases. Are there other tools that you guys have started to lean on more beyond those two? There, there are. Um, you know, at, at our company, we have our uh, fail-safe system, which is um, uh, seven high-risk conditions that if you see these patients, um, call uh, this number and you will get a, uh, it's actually an app, and you get a, uh, a seasoned physician to help you through the management of that patient. Ooh, these are like trade you, secrets. You know, well, this, this, it's, you it's know a, this, the seven, I think it probably, we could have guessed guess at them, but do you offhand know those seven things? Because I think these are the things that um, physicians really ought to focus on. If you get some time to, you know, hit the books on something, well, I'd hit the books on these seven things. Are you at liberty yeah. to share? Uh, I actually don't know them by heart. I could probably get five out of seven, but that's also my cop out because now I don't uh, reveal that trade secret. Oh, but, even, even, more, even more of a secret sauce, though, is our clinical management tools. Again, that I've mentioned his name before, Dr. Badola. He takes the evidence-based guidelines, which I'm sure you know, but he puts them into a more digestible uh, format for a particular case presentation. Um, and that, that, that's one of, I think, our most, most valuable tools. Um, and is that an app or is it on your EHR? Like, how does that work in real time? It's accessible through our company app. So like somebody, you have a patient with whatever, and then you pull up the app and it walks you through management? It, I mean, I wouldn't say walking through management, I think is too strong of a term, but it can walk you through the, you know, the evidence-based uh, algorithm of, cool. of the treatment of a, of a particular patient. Interesting. When, when, you, huh. when you have one of these seven complaints, um, do you have an expert in each of these seven uh, or like if you have this uh, problem, you dial that number, this problem, you dial that number, or is it a central number that you dial? It's the, uh, they are the, the, you know, the common high risk 
uh, scenarios. Um, What's the, the thing number? you want the number? <laughs> you know, yeah, we'll it's, find it's out. Five, 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 five. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's an app these days. Uh, it's, I don't I don't believe there's even a number anymore. Uh, it's all digital. It's all digital these days. But we'll it's work a on it. It, it's it's a it's the type of clinician who would know kind of the 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 evidence based algorithm on all seven conditions. So do you speaking of that? Uh, you know, the American Heart Association came out in 2021 with some guidelines on um, uh, low risk uh, chest pain patients, and they are very specific. And it seems that if you follow these very, very specific in the past, it was always wishy-washy, may consider, you know, that kind of crap, but these are do this, do this, do this. And I think that people ought to, ought to really get on them because they are remarkably different from what uh, other guidelines that have been released by the heart association. have been. they're not covering their butt so much uh, by making all kinds of qualifications and, so uh, we are including these in some of our courses now so that people can be aware that they're out there. But, uh, you know, you all know the heart score. Well, you ought to all look, take a look at the uh, AHA 2021 guidelines on uh, low-risk chest pain. Yeah, it's, it does. Uh, I, I mean, you know, I've heard the, the criticism that, you know, I'm not going to practice cookbook medicine. You know, I know what I'm medicine. doing. Uh, and, and, that's, and that's fine. But I think that, you know, not only can this lead to better you know, outcomes for patients, which is certainly why our company has invested in these things, um, but, but also, you know, if, if you follow those, those evidence-based tools and you put in the chart kind of w- what you're doing and, and how it helped you, you know, lead to the disposition of this patient, that's going to be helpful to you, even if the patient, you know, has a bad outcome. You know, showing your diligence and using an evidence-based tool to do your best to treat this patient. Um, yep. People talk about putting down like PCAR negative, you know, everybody kind of who deals with head injuries and adults and kids will know about PCAR uh, recommendations, which have been validated and you can show mom, mom, here's the, you know, here's, here are the guidelines of the, all of these pediatricians that say Johnny really doesn't need a CT. And I would agree with that kind of thing. So that it kind of helps reinforce your credibility in the endeavor as well, if you can uh, involve the uh, the um, the parent. Listen, this has been very helpful. I think that this. I think you've got a lot more where like this came from. I, I there's He's a lot back. More. He already said. Oh, he did. Did he? Did he promise on that? Yeah, yeah. For uh, APPs. Remember? Okay. Yeah. Well, you want to talk more about that? I understand. You know, you want to stir the pot. You know, yeah, is yeah. that what it is? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yes, you can stir the pot, and I will stand calmly by and stay out of the controversy and provide the insights. That no, I'd be happy to come back. I love doing this stuff, so I'd be happy to come and contribute again. Super helpful. This was fun. thank you. Thanks so much. Take Dusty, care. Thanks much, guys. For thanks for recording, uh, Ricky and. Uh, Dave and Dave, I hope you uh, recover uh, completely in the next several days. Bye-bye.